Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hey everybody, before I get into the standard intro, I just wanted to say that I'm super excited about this episode. As naturalists, one of the most fascinating areas of study is plant galls. I hope you get a taste as to why that is today. And you might note that my voice is a little, well, off. I do have a head cold, so hopefully it isn't too distracting. Or maybe you actually like this voice better. If so, let me know, but I'm not sure there'll be much I can do about it. So my guest today is Adam Krantz. Adam has a BA in Environmental Studies from Lawrence University in Wisconsin and a Master's of Science in Natural Resources and Environmental Science from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. His thesis was on insect pest ecology and diverse agroforestry plantings, but of late he's taken a special interest in plant galls. He's since founded gallformers.org, which is a website designed to be the authoritative resource for all plant galls of the United States and Canada. We start out discussing a bit of background about how Adam got into galls and how gallformers came to be. If you're listening now and wondering, what's a gall anyway? Well, these are beautiful and sometimes bizarre growths on plant tissues induced by another organism, such as a wasp, a midge, or many others. They often develop vivid colors and evocative shapes, and all have fascinating natural histories. These growths occur specifically to support the life cycle of the inducer, and are often induced in amazingly precise ways that you'll have to hear to believe. For example, Adam explains how the larvae inside the gall may steer the plant response throughout the entire lifespan. By the way, I have photos of several of these amazing species in the show notes and on my Instagram at Nature's Archive. You've really got to check them out. We also discuss strategies and techniques for looking for galls in the field. They are quite common throughout much of the world, and many can be easily identified. We discuss some of the attributes of a gall that might help you to identify them, when and where to look, what you can do to improve your chances of an ID on iNaturalist, and we talk about some of the other plant growths that might be confused with galls. And as if the crazy shapes and colors and interactions weren't enough, it turns out there's still a lot to learn about galls, and they're a great area of focus for naturalists looking to discover and describe new species. Adam also gives a nice overview of three extremely interesting galls that are among his favorites. Each of these have fascinating natural histories, including peculiarities like hollow centers with free-rolling cells, and what might be considered a gall threesome, where a second cinnipid wasp comes along and entirely changes the gall's developmental trajectory. Of course, Adam describes this in a much more scientifically accurate way. You can find Adam and gallformers on Twitter, at gallformers, and Adam on iNaturalist, at megachild. So without further delay... Adam Kranz. Adam, I really appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks for having me. So the topic of galls, I think, is really of a lot of interest to a lot of naturalists. And for me here in California, we're in peak gall season right now as we're recording this. So I'm really excited to have you today and get into the fascinating natural history of galls. Before we dive into that, however, I want to understand a little bit about how you found galls. And maybe we go way back. And how did you get interested in nature in the first place? I actually came to natural history from an activist political angle. I was into like anarchist, anti-civilization sort of politics as a high school kid. And that sort of gave me this idea that nature was something that I needed as an expression of my personal values, get to know. And like that led me to, once you start studying nature, the interest of it takes hold on its own. At that point in my life, I'm interested in nature, but never really got all that far as a natural historian. And so for me, it wasn't until actually I discovered iNaturalist after grad school that I actually started making headway as a natural historian on my own. So I, it was the, the computer vision, which as many of your listeners probably are familiar with, the computer vision on iNaturalist provides suggestions about what 
you know, your observations are. And that just opened up this whole world. It made it the sort of frustrating, difficult activity of finding out what all this stuff I was seeing actually was. Finally, that dam broke and I was able to get off and figure out what these things actually were. And that was really exciting for me. And it kind of took, took over my life at that point. And so ever since I've been kind of obsessed with using INAT. And after that, I, you know, I was getting into different things. I, I got Charlie Eisenman's book, Tracks and Signs of Insects. Uh, and I was focusing on all the sorts of different things that he talks about in the book, leaf miners, eggs, and pupae, and all these sorts of different interesting things that you see. And I realized that of all of those things, plant galls were just this massive world that his book like barely scratches the surface of. And that in terms of the expert community on INAT, there wasn't anybody out there who was focusing on this. And, and there's just all of this work that needed to be done in terms of identifying old observations and making new species and all of this stuff that once I started doing that a little bit, it was just a rabbit hole where it kept getting bigger and bigger. And I realized how enormous this project was actually going to be in order to take care of this stuff. And it's been an obsession for me ever. Yeah, when I had Charlie on the show, in fact, uh, he said that each chapter of his book could be an entire book in and of itself, which he has gone to prove with his Leaf Miner online book. In fact, I think each chapter of, of his book could be a whole volume uh, a set of books. And I wanted to back up real quick with to the computer vision, the CV part of mm -hmm. iNaturalist. As I understand it, that is the machine learning aspect of iNaturalist, where there are reference photos that then inform the identification suggestions that iNAT provides. I, from some of our prior discussion in, in preparing for this show, it sounded like you were actually working to fill in some of the gaps there so that the computer vision could be improved for goals. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things I found really exciting at first when I started using INAT is that I realized that there were a couple of really common things that the existing computer vision was already able to identify for me. But then I was finding all of these sort of underobserved species that were still relatively common. And I thought, what's it going to take to make it so that in the future, those observations would be identified correctly? And I talked to the people on the INET team and realized that you just needed to get over a certain threshold. They needed a minimum of 100 observations for each species to get them included into the next training batch for the CV in the future. And so that was really motivating for me, you know, of the species that I already knew to go out and find more observations in my area, take more pictures, upload them, but also to go through and identify other observations that would get to that goal from other people in other parts of the country. And like I said, once I started doing that a little bit, I realized well, there's all these other species that aren't even on the site at all. It's just this huge uh, backlog of literature and all of these observations that are waiting for identification that somebody just needs to come along and put in the time to, to connect those. So I had no idea that there was a threshold of 100 observations. Or is that research-grade observation? There's some particular details to it. I don't want to go on the record with specifically what, what those are. It's something like 50 research-grade plus a minimum of 10 observers. Is it some traits that they, they yeah, apply to make sure that it's diverse and stuff? Yeah, that makes sense. You could have one person misidentifying something 100 times, and you wouldn't want that to, <laughs> to necessarily go into the computer. Yeah, so they have some safeguards to avoid yeah, that. Yeah, makes sense. So you've taken this interest, like you identified this niche that needs more help, and uh, you've actually now developed a site called Golformers. Golformers.org is where you can find it. Can you tell me about what that project is, what your goals with that project are? Yeah, like I said, when I discovered that there's this huge sort of literature, so maybe 100 years ago, people were pretty interested in the natural history of golf. There's a lot of publications in the academic literature. There's 
a fair number of popular publications. Uh, and so these are all out there. You can access these all on websites like the Biodiversity Heritage Library. Most of them are public domain. But naturalists today basically don't know these books exist. So I knew of one, the Weld book about cynipid wasps I got from um, Charlie Eisman. But other than that, nobody seemed to be aware that all these publications had been released, that this information was freely available. And so the goal of our website, Golformers, is basically to take all of that primary literature information. And for one thing, just to make it like conveniently available for a naturalist today by combining it with an ID tool that lets users search by field obvious traits, right? So if you're looking at a gall on a plant, if you can identify that plant, and then you can answer a few simple questions about what that gall looks like, where you find it on the plant, what color it is, season, stuff like that, basic field traits that don't hopefully require a ton of expert knowledge, then that ID tool is going to present you with a short list with good pictures where available that are going to let you easily identify that species that you're looking at in the field. So that's one of our main goals. And then our other goal is to then expand that literature. There's quite a few publications documenting gulls from the past 150 years or so, but the work is by no means anywhere near done. And it's actually an area that if you're a naturalist who's interested in finding undescribed species or contributing to the sort of frontier of scientific knowledge, galls are a great place to do it because we have, even in places that are relatively, you would think, relatively well studied, a lot of undescribed species in North America. It's a great place to contribute to knowledge there. And our website hopes to facilitate that by collecting and organizing observations of undescribed galls. So I know it's a relatively new site. How much progress have you made at this point, and uh, what do you see as next steps? Sure. So we got started around the beginning of 2021. We've been building the site on the technical side and then filling in data for maybe, I don't know, four or five months now, uh, in sort of a pretty active way. At this point, we have almost 2,000 galls listed on the site. Of those, almost half of them, so about 1,000 are oak galls, and we have a complete set of all of the described oak gall species from North America. So yeah, at this point, we're just trying to fill in that that database, expanding out to other host plant genera and just looking for other observations to, to fill in and then taking more things from the literature. So for anybody listening right now that wants to help contribute to gall formers, what can they do to help? Sure. So gall formers is by amateur naturalists for amateur naturalists. So none of us are experts. We're not in academia necessarily. And we're all people who are just trying to find information about galls and build this sort of collective area of knowledge. One thing that helps us, obviously, is just for people to observe galls and put those observations on iNaturalist or a website like Bug Guide, where we can find them and see if they contribute to our the knowledge that we're trying to build. But if people are interested in going beyond just being an observer, we're af- definitely looking for more people to contribute to the site as admins. So maybe pick off an area uh, where you live or a taxonomic group that you're interested in and to find the literature and to fill in the gaps in our our database because our project is pretty ambitious and it's never going to get anywhere close to complete unless we have interested, active users who are helping us uh, fill in that data. And is the scope North America? Yeah, so our intended scope is the U.S., the continental U.S. and Canada, although we do have a little bit of a few species that we include from Mexico and other parts of Central America. The problem is that once you get outside of the U.S. and Canada, the literature is much thinner relative to the diversity of species. And so we just end up having a lot of undescribed species, which isn't undesirable, but it makes the website less useful than it is in the U.S. and Canada. So that's our main focus. 
that would be such a huge undertaking as well. I can only imagine if you're talking a couple thousand known species here, then you expand that to to places like Mexico or the tropics or the whole rest of the world. There's got to be tens of thousands. Yeah, if you look at oaks alone, but the diversity of oak species going from the U.S. to Mexico, it like doubles. And that makes everything so much harder because galls are so host specific that you need to have an ad- a species identity for the host and people don't know how to do that. And we don't know how to help them do that. Less resources available. It's just much more difficult. So we've been talking about galls as if everybody knows what they are, but haven't really addressed what they are, how they're formed, things like that. Can you tell me what is a plant gall? How do they form? Sure. So a plant gall is basically a novel organ of a plant that can only exist because the plant develops in a way that's guided by some other organism. So we call these inducers, gall inducers. They can be all sorts of things, wasps, midges, mites, aphids, fungi, even nematodes, all sorts of different taxa have developed this strategy. And basically it's a form of herbivory where the plant is induced to create a structure that protects and feeds the inducer. Uh, So it's an alteration of the plant's development. It's not People often make the mistake of thinking that galls are some kind of a tumor or like a scar tissue that's developed in response to like feeding damage, which is something you often see with other kinds of herbivory. But galls aren't aren't that sort of like a chaotic response, right? A gall is a specific design that the plant creates using plant genes to a design created by the inducer. That's tricky to wrap your head around, but the idea is that it's plant genes Plants are supplying the sugars, all of the the compounds that create the the gall. It's just that they're expressing those genes in a way that the plant could never do on its own. Yeah, and I guess that sort of interaction then explains why for individual species, the galls always look pretty much the same. The morphology ends up being consistent uh, across different individuals of the same species. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of, I guess, what you call the extended phenotype of the gall inducer. It's just that includes not just the plant itself as the niche that organism lives in, but specifically the genetic information of that plant that they're altering as a part of their life history. So you mentioned there's a number of different families of organisms that can induce galls, and they can also induce them in a number of different places on a plant as well. Are there any insights? First of all, like where do you typically see a gall? But are there any thoughts as to why certain strategies maybe are taken on to choose a certain location for for a gall? So we find plant galls on all different parts of host plants. There are leaf galls, and this is part of what our ID tool at gallfarmers.org is built on. So that there's this long, very specific co-evolutionary relationship that you need to have in order for an inducing organism to specifically play these plant host uh, genes in the right order, in the right way to develop this novel organ, right? It's not something that you can just move from one plant to another, but it gets a lot even more specific than that because the, the uh, genes that they're stimulating, the, the structures that they're creating can only be created on particular parts of the plant. So some galls can only be formed on plant stems Some are found on flowers, some are on fruit, some are on the roots, different parts of the roots, rhizomes versus other parts of the root, just the root crown. And then on the leaves, you have galls that are only found on the angle between the veins. Some galls are only found in the upper side of the leaf, some only in the lower, some only in the midrib. And so we take advantage of all that specificity to uh, facilitate our ID tool to tell people where 
what species they're likely to look at, be looking at based on where it is on the planet. If we were to maybe look at, say, let's pick uh, cinnipid wasps as one focal you know, area for this. Can you walk me through then when, how, et cetera, that they induce the gall? Like, I, it sounds like there's a very specific timing that, that has to be followed here for them to be successful in this. Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, absolutely. Each wasp has its own target part of the plant, but they also have particular seasons and parts of the plant's development. So there's sort of a temporal uh, niche partitioning here as well as uh, physical. And so a snippet wasp will lay eggs. So let's take a species that occurs in the spring, will lay eggs in the bud tissue before the leaves and stems of the, the new year's growth emerge. And then those eggs will hatch into larvae and those tiny little larvae this is to best of my understanding. The larvae are primarily responsible for actually inducing the gall as that new year's growth grows around them. So whether they emerge in the spring or in the fall, those structures develop as the plant tissue grows and they're constantly changing the chemicals that they're emitting into the plant to update based on what stage the gall the growth of the gall is in. So, you know, it, that it, it creates the structure at the right time and in the right place and with the right traits that the inducer wants it to have. So potentially for a spring gall like that, the adult is laying the eggs very early in the season if it's still mm -hmm. at, in bud form. Yeah. So here in Michigan, I saw a lot of snippet wasps ovipositing in around March, back when there's still snow on the ground. And they're actually a relatively easy thing to observe as well, just the wasps themselves, because they're very slow and you know, the cluster on the, the same sort of host plants that you expect them from the galls. So that's a good point to start looking early then. And, and these are typically very small wasps. You said they're, they're easy to, to find, but they aren't like super dramatic. You, you have to look pretty close, I think, to see them still. Right. And the adults that are ovipositing so early in the year, have they just emerged from the previous year's galls? Where have they been all winter? Yeah, so a lot of gall life cycles involve pupation and overwintering either on the forest floor inside of a gall, and sometimes this can last for multiple years. So a lot of oak gall wasps, because oaks are, I think this is presumably something to do with the fact that oaks are a masting species. So the abundance of available acorns at any given year might be very different. And this might also be just to avoid cycles in, in parasitoid or predator abundance. But Many galls will persist on the forest floor for multiple years, and then the wasp will emerge from the gall, and then at, at the time it's appropriate for it to oviposit, will emerge from the gall and go find its target organ. Yeah, so a number of different strategies then involved in overwintering. 
And one other thing you said that sort of piqued my interest is the the root galls that could be on different parts of the root. And that's just got to be so difficult to actually observe because I don't think there are many naturalists going around digging up plants to, to inspect the roots. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an area where we have a pretty good reason to guess that there are a lot of undescribed or never reported species uh, just because you don't see them. They're hidden underground. To your knowledge, has anyone gone out and actually attempted to do any sort of survey? So I know because oak galls, snippet galls on oaks are, are particularly well studied, we know that there are quite a few root galls that occur on oaks. And part of that is people looking for um, alternate generations. So not only do snippets overwinter in galls on the ground or sometimes in the tree itself, depending on wh- where the gall is, but many snippet species have alternating generations within a year. So they'll have what we call an agamic generation where there are only female wasps. And then the eggs laid by that generation will contain both male and female wasps. We call that the sexual generation. And those two galls can be extremely different. And so we have something like a a thousand known galls from oaks right now. And of those, maybe over 600 of them are named described wasp species. And presumably the majority of those wasps occur in pairs. So we know them as 600 different species, but actually there may be only 300 species that we don't realize yet. We haven't connected that they're alternate generations of the same species. Uh, So that's an active area of research to try and connect those alternating generations. Uh, And a lot of the root galls are alternate generations of species that also form galls on leaves or flowers or acorns. Yeah, that's just so like mind-blowing and fascinating you mentioned that there could actually be a reduction in number of species as we start to figure these things out. At the same time, I know there's a number of different factors that could result in splitting of species, and there's all these undescribed species as well. Have you seen cases where there's a gall that looks very similar, say, on a set of Western oaks as Eastern oaks, but it turns out through research, through DNA, I I don't know, some discovery that they're actually uh, different species, or I, I, I'm not quite sure what the right question to ask there is, but how do these splits tend to come about? I, th- I think at the, at the moment, most of our galls lean toward, because of the nature of galls as a natural history object, they lean toward lumping rather than splitting. And we will probably, as DNA comes into to play more, probably see some of that splitting. But the, at, the, at the moment, I think I can't really come up with a good example for you because so the, the problem is that this is something we deal with in, in areas that are even less studied than the snippet wasps a lot, where um, we'll see a gall that happens in North America on a North American native host species. And I can say this looks very similar to a gall that's found in Europe that has a name in Europe, but I have no way to know without doing the actual um, specimen, the genetic or the anatomical analysis to prove that these are actually the same species. So I think at the moment we're making some assumptions that things that look the same that are on related hosts are caused by the same species, but there's always the chance that further DNA evidence will prove that was a mistaken assumption. Just goes to show how much there is to learn in this space. So you mentioned that there's by far oaks have the most gall species that have been described. What other plants are prolific or, or maybe not so prolific, but interesting host to galls? Yeah, so oaks are, are definitely the champion in this respect, as in so many respects, for whatever reason. But in North America, the second place winner by far is the uh, hickory genus. 
So we have two big groups on hickories. We have hickory midges and hickory phylloxera, and both of those have around 50 species each. And then after that, goldenrod has a ton of gall species. That's something that we're still currently in the process of building out our guide for. So right now, the gall farmers website is comprehensive for oak galls, hickory galls, and hackberry galls. Hackberries are mostly midge galls and psyllid galls, and we have around 50 species on hackberries. And then other than that, there's just a huge list of species that have maybe one or two or five or 10 gall species. Being so prolific, I've seen oak trees that just literally have hundreds, if not thousands of galls on them as one example. I suspect that these play an important role in the in the ecosystem in general, and maybe the food web more specifically. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the known interactions that exist with galls in the food web? So galls are a form of herbivory. So they're a vector that's going to take resources from primary producers, from plants to anything that eats them. And so we know that there's a huge community of parasitoid wasps are the primary known predators of gall inducers. So there's mostly chalcidoid wasps and cynipid wasps are going to be found in all sorts of galls, whether they're made by midges or flies or even mites. There's a at least one parasitoid wasp species known to inhabit areophyid mite galls, which is mind-blowing to me because these mites are just so incredibly tiny. You need a scanning electron microscope to actually <laughs> even take an anatomically useful picture of them. Uh, and yet that there's still a parasitoid wasp small enough to you know, make their living specifically seeking these things out. But other than parasitoids, galls are a common target of all sorts of things that eat insects, right? That, that's the one of, one of the big selection pressures in the, the design of the gall is to find ways to deter parasitoids and predators. And then there's, of course, the incentive. The more effective those strategies are, the greater the incentive for other organisms to learn how to get into them. So we know that mice, squirrels will chew into acorns to get at cynipid larvae. Uh, woodpeckers and other kinds of birds will peck through the woody outer parts of galls to get at the little larvae inside. And we also know that there are actually stories of humans eating galls. Uh, I don't know what exactly. <laughs> this is a time when maybe people didn't have such good food available, but I've read stories in the literature of school kids on their little lunch breaks going out and picking up oak apples, which you hear oak apples. If you don't know what they're like, that might sound like it might be an appetizing snack, but there are these just extremely thin walled uh, spheres that are just full of strings. Hard to see what the appeal of that would be necessarily, but Apparently, people have eaten them in the past. As I understand it, there's a lot of tannins in those, and they yeah, they wouldn't be too too appealing, I don't think, to most people anyway. Yeah. You mentioned that a lot of the design of galls is to prevent access by some of these predators. And I mean, I've heard some interesting stories. For, well, first of all, just looking at some of the galls that I've seen around here, they have these spikes or hairs or things like that, that I guess he would just make physical access difficult. Mm -hmm. But the chambers where like larva might be maturing are, as I understand it, also distanced from the, from the perimeter of the gall just far enough to avoid some of the predation. Like there's some of these other, I guess, the co-evolutionary arms race sort of activities that seem to be happening. First of all, are these stories I've heard, are they accurate? And, and maybe you have more you can elaborate on what's been observed. Yeah, so this is an area that I think is definitely understudied uh, and that we'll learn more as more research comes out. But we have a fairly confident idea that predation is an extremely strong selection pressure on gall inducers as it is for most organisms and that we can infer, but maybe not say with scientific proof 
in a lot of cases that particular features are, you know, emerged the way they are in order to avoid parasitism. So for instance, one very common strategy in oak galls and cynipid galls is to secrete honeydew, which is something that oaks don't do on their own. They're a, a plant that doesn't attract pollinators, right? They're wind pollinated tree. And yet they now have these sort of nectar producing glands caused by the, the gall inducer that attract ants. And the reason ants and, and other, you often see in Michigan, I also often see bald-faced hornets, yellow jackets, things like that, that come to feed on this honeydew. And we have reason to believe that the reason that the gall inducers cause this honeydew excretion is to attract ants that prevent parasitoid access. That the ants defend them in the same way that they might defend scale insects or something like that. So that would be uh, a tip-off if you see a lot of ants and some honeydew on an oak tree. That's uh, something worth inspecting a little bit more closely. Absolutely. So we started to talk a little bit about the the plants where the most variety of galls occur on. And, and I guess for the naturalists out there that really want to go out, and you know, hopefully we can get this published here yet in September, so there's still a window of time to, to look for galls. Uh, so I, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about strategies, where to look, how to look, those sorts of things. And I guess I just gave a little bit of a hint saying that, well, hopefully we can publish this in September, but time of year, you know, what's the seasonality and how might it change? Like, where would you look, say, I'm just guessing galls will stick to the leaves when they fall in the autumn. So you could probably look even later into the year still as well. In North America, I, as a, a gall uh, fanatic, you get really familiar with identifying oak trees, not only just spotting them, identifying them to species. Oaks become this sort of like a uh, little delight every time you take a walk and you see an oak tree. Oh, there's something I got to go look at. Oaks, goldenrods, hickories, hackberries, roses have a lot of snippet galls. Grapes have a, a pretty wide variety of midge galls. Poplars, you'll find a few different aphid galls on. Maples, cherries, elms all have a decent gall fauna in North America. And then just pretty much anything. Grasses don't tend to have much, such as anything like that, as far as I'm aware, not the best, most productive places to look for galls, but broadleaf plants. But in terms of seasonality, it's, like I said, so for with cynipid galls, they have this alternating generational structure. So you'll see a completely different gall fauna if you look in the spring than you do if you look in the summer or the fall. So it's actually never really a bad time to look for galls. But right now in the fall, there's a ton of unique cynipids and other galls that haven't quite emerged yet. In places like California or Texas, you have a much longer time to uh, to do that. But in terms of dropping off the leaf, you mentioned, so there's one of the main criteria we, we divide galls by in on gall formers is whether galls are integral or detachable. So on leaf galls and some stem galls, they'll actually fall off the leaf before the leaves fall. The galls will complete their development and just fall to the ground because that's where they overwinter. Whereas other galls that are integral will stay on the leaf and you can find them on the leaves uh, into the winter. Okay. So the, that's actually a hint then when you find the gall still attached to the leaf. And if you can then identify the host plant, of course. Yeah. Once they fall on the ground, that makes it tough because you don't know where they came from. You have to look around and see if you can connect the gall to a likely source. So you, you mentioned that California, Texas, I assume places like Arizona, I know there's a lot of interesting sort of scrub oaks uh, in those areas. Maybe the, the gall season extends a little bit longer. 
And, and here in California, I was going to mention a couple plants that, that I tend to look at a lot when I go out. In addition to everything you said, willows. I think we see a lot of midge galls on, on willows here. I have the proper Latin name is escaping me, but we call it a California coffee berry, and it gets a flower gall in the spring. And uh, the uh, coyote brush is another good one that there's often galls on as well. And that's one of the most common plants that you see in California. So for those listening, those are also ones to take a look at. Yeah, you guys are lucky. You have a very totally unique cinnabid fauna over in California. It's super fun too. And, and we get a lot of really colorful galls this time of the year. The spring galls are fun, but the fall galls tend to be a little bit more over the top in terms of their coloration and shapes and so forth. That's ultimately, that's like the base of the, the appeal of it is that just the, the fantastic forms and designs that these inducers have come up with. They're just so interesting to look at. Yeah, and I'll make sure to link to a few interesting ones uh, as well. And I know we're going to talk about some of your favorite galls here in a little bit. So maybe we can get some photos of those to link to in the show notes. Yeah, it's a shame because they're so so visual. It sort of can't get it quite across. But I, I would invite listeners to go to golf formers just to browse. You have to put in a, a host genus. So if you just put in a Quercus or Caria and just look at the shapes, you'll be, I think, quite intrigued. Yeah, great idea. And fully endorse that. So Continuing on with kind of the, the how to look for galls. So we've covered sort of the when and where and the types of plants. Are there other sorts of growths that might be confused with galls? Yeah, so we, thanks to the INET computer vision, we get a lot of these uh, sorts of things that the computer vision suggests, hey, this is probably a gall, uh, and it turns out to be something else. The, the most common one is, is burls. So people think that burls are a subtype of gall, but they're actually not. They're more like the normal sort of what you'd imagine as like a tumor or a scar tissue on a tree. People often mistake insect eggs for galls and maybe more commonly vice versa, different kinds of feeding damage, but mostly it's other plant structures. So if a gall is a novel plant organ, what they're most likely to resemble is something produced by a plant uh, rather than an insect. Uh, and so we'll see people confuse different kinds of seed pods or flower buds, uh, things like that, adventitious roots, uh, which are little roots that occur on the sides of stems above the ground. But we've even actually had, I think on at least two occasions now, people have uh, tagged me in observations of rabbit poop and asked me to identify what kind of gall species they were. <laughs> I, I suppose for somebody who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience with galls, uh, some of them are super obvious and you see it and you know it's a gall. Some of them really are cryptic. And uh, I, I have a number of observations on iNaturalist myself that I've attached to the to the, one of the various gall projects, and and I have to kind of say I, I think it's a gall, but you know, I'm not really sure, and uh, and then hope that an expert can come along and provide an expert eye to the observation. So speaking of observing galls and making it, them identifiable, what tips do you have for people say that are submitting their observations to iNat? So the first question we're going to ask anybody who submits a gall observation, if we can't tell from the pictures, is to tell us what the host plant is. Whether you're a qualified amateur botanist to do this on your own or not, you can take advantage of the CV, you can take advantage of the expert community on iNaturalist to help you figure out what those plants are. But making sure that you get enough pictures that we can confirm that is extremely helpful. So if you're really confident you know what you're looking at, then fine, you can just take a picture of the, the gall on its own. But these relationships are so close that without that confident identification, we basically have to recognize it already. And that is actually something that we do a lot. Once you see a lot of galls, you realize this is a very unique structure. 
and I would know this anywhere, even if I didn't know what plant it was on. And we can actually do it in reverse. We can use the galls as a line of evidence to guess at what the host plant is. And that's often quite fun and satisfying. So it's not just one or the other, right? You don't have to learn all of your host plant ID first before you can do the galls. You can do them sort of both at the same time and contribute to this larger sense of familiarity with the plant community. But other than that, for the gall itself, if you have a leaf gall, we really often and sometimes always, depending on the taxon, need to see the top and the bottom side of the leaf where the gall is attached. And other than that, a cross-section, so cutting it open to show what the internal structure looks like, is something that is always useful and sometimes we can't do an ID without it. So if you carry a little knife or sometimes you can use your fingernail just to see what they look like inside can be very informative. Yeah, one trap I found myself fall into, um, and unfortunately I still get lazy at certain times, so I'll take a picture of a gall thinking it should be easily identifiable, and uh, I won't photograph, say, the underside of the leaf. Maybe I looked at the underside of the leaf and there's really nothing there, but having the photograph that shows there's nothing there is really helpful to others to help confirm what it was that you did see. I have to consciously remind myself still at this sort of early stage of my naturalist development to take more photos than I think are necessary and more angles. And and then, and then typically it works out, but it, the worst is just to get home and look at something and be like, you know what? I can't really identify that. And I don't have enough data to, to figure out what it was. Yeah. It's a tough balance to strike to figure out how much evidence to gather on any one thing versus going out and getting more observations and seeing more different things. You have to learn that over time. Yeah. That's a good point. Everything's a trade-off. And I guess the other little tip from my own personal experiences here in California, we have a pretty good variety of oaks. Yeah, we focused in this discussion today a lot on oaks. And when I first started, I, it was intimidating to identify the oaks and to learn how to distinguish them all from each other. And it's one of those things, I think so many things that when you first start, uh, it seems intimidating, but then you chip away at it for a while. And, and next thing you know, it's not so hard. So I uh, encourage people to just give it a shot and it's probably not going to be as intimidating as it might seem at first. Yeah, I think galls are, are just a great example of that principle in, in natural history because some of them are so distinctive and so easy to recognize that it gives you that sort of place to start from. Yeah, I did something for the first time two weekends ago and that was I took a nature hike specifically looking for galls. Now I've done a lot of hikes where I'm looking for everything, like any interesting thing, but this time I was fully focused on galls. And it was one of the more enjoyable hikes I've had in a while, partly because I was able to just focus so deeply and observe so closely. You get into that mindfulness zone in observing nature. I never would have guessed I would be doing that a couple of years ago, but I'm certainly going to do it again. With all of this in mind, yeah, I'd love to hear, given all of your experience, you've seen so many different galls in person and through gall formers. I'd love to hear about what some of your favorite galls are and why and what their own natural histories are. Sure. So I picked three here that are going to be things that I've seen in person in Michigan. Uh, and so the first one is Calaritis quercus operator. And this is one of the few galls that we do actually know both generations of. So in the spring, I first saw this year on the northern pin oak trees in our yard. As the tree was flowering, you get these big, fluffy, they look like big, it's not that big, but they always look bit, bigger to me in pictures than they do in real life. But they look like big cotton bowls uh, on the, the catkins of the oak tree. And if you dissect those, you find these tiny little individual cells inside where the larvae live. 
and the wool itself is this sort of beautiful, it looks just like normal wool when you see it from a distance, but if you put it under a microscope or a, a close digital camera, each of the uh, individual strands of wool is this beautiful, clear crystal and they look like glass. Uh, it's really lovely. And then those wasps that emerge from those catkin galls go to oviposit on the young acorns that develop on other unaffected catkins and or on the, the female catkins, female flowers rather, of the oak. And as the acorns grow in the fall, you get these tiny little pips that look like kernels of corn that grow like somebody stuck them underneath the cup of the acorn. And they release honeydew and they attract other organisms. So I think that's cool just because we know that whole life cycle and we can tell how this particular wasp species is taking advantage of the full life cycle of this oak every year that's going from flower to fruit. And this wasp is coming along for the ride. I, I looked it up because I wasn't familiar with that species. And you're right. Like I thought at least the spring generation looked a lot like fuzzy pink cotton candy. And I could see, you know, to your earlier point about people eating galls and eating the <laughs> oak apple galls, that would look pretty appealing to me if I were a kid. It, it would look like something sweet to uh, take a bite of. Yeah, I haven't tried it. So the other one I was going to mention, the second species, is called the succulent oak gall wasp. So this is Dryocosmus quercus palustris, and it's a very common, very abundant gall found in the spring on red group oaks, so quercus rubra and other oaks in that group. And they form these little green globs. They're almost perfect spheres. They look like little green grapes. And they, what's remarkable about them to me is that inside, they're completely hollow, and they have what's called in literature a free-rolling cell. So what that means is that the cell that the actual larva lives in is not attached to the plant anymore. It just rolls around. So if you pick up the leaf and shake it, you can't actually hear it because it's too quiet, but if you open it up, you can see this little pellet rolling around inside with the larva in it. And most of the space of the gall is actually completely empty. As far as I'm aware, this is something that doesn't occur without the aid of an inducer in plants at all. It's maybe always possible. There's always exceptions in nature. But as far as I'm aware, this is something that an oak tree can only do because this wasp taught it how to do it. And I just blows my mind that they can, you know, create such a new ability to have this little loose pellet inside of another structure. That's remarkable to me. I have no idea if this makes any sense to someone like yourself, who's an expert in the area. But I was just thinking about having that free rolling cell in there. And if there was a parasitoid that came along trying to like inject its own egg inside, that might make it extremely difficult. It would just push that free rolling cell away as opposed to actually being able to inject inside of it. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis, but I have no, no evidence one way or another whether that's the reason that those occur. There, there are all sorts of galls in that genus that have free, free rolling cells, and some of them are much less hollow than this one, much less space in there. And I, I don't know if a significant strategy in that or reason that strategy developed. It's fun to think about anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. And your third one. Sure. So this is also, this is the third species that also is found on red group oaks in Michigan, and it's called Caloritis quercus gemaria. So these are little green cylinders, little ribbed cylinders that emerge in these really dense clusters in the spring along the stem or twig of red oaks. And they release honeydew. And so you often see these covered by ants that are collecting that honeydew. Uh, and we, again, we, we think that's in order to deter other wasps from coming into oviposit on those galls. But in this case, there is at least one other wasp that successfully bypasses that security mechanism and lays its eggs in there. 
We think that this is a uh, synergist species, another synipid wasp. And so if these galls get oviposited by the synergist wasp, they completely change their developmental tra trajectory. So instead of dropping onto the forest floor like they normally would, they stay on the tree, they get much bigger, and they get almost woody, and they stay on there for months, and they look completely different than what otherwise. And so that's, I guess what I find interesting about those is that the, not only do you have the plant and the inducer, you then have this third organism, and only the three of them together can produce this outcome, this unique or organ on the plant stem. Yeah, it's just another kind of mind-blowing thing in nature that uh, I think it would be so easily overlooked. Mm -hmm. Oh, it absolutely has been. Yeah, now we know to look for it. Here's a request I have for you. For each of these, do you have photos that you'd be able to share with me I could put in the show notes for people to see? Oh, of course. Yep. Awesome. So yeah, the, I, I looked at all of them, and they are all fascinating. So uh, I highly advise people to take a look. So to wrap things up, I always have a few standard questions I like to ask. And, and one, of course, is you know, what resources do you recommend for people who are interested in learning more about galls? We've talked about a whole bunch here today. So maybe this is just a recap. Maybe you have some other ones as well. Sure. Yeah. So our, our website, Gallformers, is obviously my uh, number one recommendation. Our goal is to make that site a one-stop shop for gall identification. So we're planning to include full passages from the primary literature whenever possible so that it will not just be our information, but it will be all available information. So for instance, a lot of the older sources like the Weld, Lewis Hartweld, Sinipid books uh, that he's written on the Eastern Pacific and Southwestern United States, those books are all completely redundant relative to our database. We have all of his information plus a lot more. But outside of what we have, there are uh, definitely some useful books out there. Ron Russo is a California gall expert who recently published a new book. He had a, one previous older book, but he's a brand new book just came out this year called Plant Galls of the Western United States. That would be a definite must own for anybody in California, Oregon, Arizona. Charlie Eisman's blog has tons of great observations and interesting information about galls. Bug Guide, of course, although at this point, most of what they have is going to be on our, our site as well. If it's not, it will be soon. And then if you find yourself in a position where none of those resources get you the information you need, uh, you can start looking in the Biodiversity Heritage Library for things that we haven't added to our site yet. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned Charlie's other book, The uh, Tracks and Signs of Insects and Other Invertebrates. And I'll include links to all of these as well, but that, that other book has a good overview on galls. Do you have any other upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight? So at this point, we're just plugging away at filling in the site. So short-term plans are just to pick out another genus and find all the literature and put that onto the site. So I, I haven't, I, at the moment, I haven't actually decided where I'm going next. I just finished up with the new uh, phylloxera on hickories and in between projects right now. All right. And if people want to follow your progress or follow your work, where can they go? Can go to the website, golfformers.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at golfformers. And if you want to follow me personally on iNaturalist, my handle is MegaKyle. And one thing we didn't really talk about on iNaturalist is there are a couple, for those listeners anyway that do contribute observations, there are a couple of gall-oriented projects out there. There's at least the two that I contribute to. to there's a California-specific one. And then uh, one I think that Charlie Eiswin actually started called Galls of yep. North America. And, and I those think projects those are, are nested. Okay. So I think all of the California galls go into the North America project. That's really good to know. <laughs> that will save me some time. <laughs> uh, yeah. So 
you're uploading an observation to INAT and you think it's a gall, but you're not sure what kind of gall, you can always just submit it to that project and someone will see it there at some point, <laughs> whether it's in the short term or long term, you can feel free to tag me as well. And I will try to help you identify your goals. Okay. Well, Adam, it's really been a fascinating conversation. I appreciate all the time that you've spent with me here today and best of luck to you as golf formers fills out. I'll certainly do what I can to help out in, in making that the resource that you envision it to become. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know, did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.